According to the House GOP campaign arm, there's more women running for U.S. House as Republicans than ever before. Is this something that the church should be celebrating? Welcome to The Conquering Truth. I'm Dan Horn. I'm Jonathan Sides. I'm Charles Churchill. And I'm Joshua Horn. In America, both political parties have been pushing very hard to have met more women representatives in elected positions. But if you look through Scripture, this isn't really the teaching of Scripture. So is this what the church should be pushing for and supporting? I mean, the short answer is no, but I do think we have to walk through that. I don't expect someone to be satisfied with me just saying no. Scripture has a lot to say about it, and there's a lot of specific things we should be saying. But I mean, before we even talk about those things, I think it's important to kind of walk back and say, the church is in a pretty bad state where we've gotten to the point where we actually have to walk through these things and say, should women be representative? Should women have positions of authority? And doing this episode, it's really easy to come across and go, we're four men who are attacking women. And that's, that's I mean, I can even, if you hold the position that women should be in, elected, in an elected office, it's very, it's very hard for you to look and say, we're not attacking women. But the truth is, is Scripture has a certain order. It has, and that's really what needs to be reestablished, is that there, there is an order and there is a structure to these things. And God has, God has vested his nature into the world, and he represents himself through male and female, and he represents himself through these things. And so there's a part of it where the interest is in men are out of order, women are out of order, the houses are out of order, the churches are out of order, and those things need to be brought back in line with God's teaching. It's not a, a denigration of women by any means, but there is this part of it where it's it's a return to biblical teaching, and that's really what's needed in the church today. And we're trying to make good on a promise that we made in a previous podcast where we were talking about what you should think about as far as qualifications for just who you should vote for. And we looked at the Old Testament, we looked at Exodus 8, and one of the first things that it says is that your elected officials should be able men. And at the time, we just sort of left it as a promissory note that that's actually a really big issue, and we need to unpack it in a, in a whole podcast. So yeah, the outline started to be, <laughs> we're going to spend as much time on this, epi- on this one issue as we were going to spend on the rest of the episode. Right. And there's a whole bunch of qualifications that follow after that. So we put that one aside for now, and now we're going to address it. And so please, if you haven't listened to that other one, we want to encourage you to listen to that other podcast as well. You know, I, I do think you're right that there will be people who say that we attack women by saying that women shouldn't be civil magistrates. But I want to argue that Scripture says that you're attacking children if you say that you want women civil magistrates. Because what you're saying is that it's not as good for a woman to raise children, to have children, or to raise them as it is for them to be in civil office. So you've denigrated women when you say that we're attacking women. I would say that the scripture says exactly the opposite, and that you're saying children don't matter, you're saying society doesn't matter, you're saying continuity of the human race doesn't matter when you say women need to be civil magistrates. It's not a minor issue. It really is an attack on the family, an attack on children. Particularly when your argument is equality of function. Right. I mean, because in the end, scripture says, no, I've designed this very differently. 
So we've also done a previous episode that may be worth watching on why women shouldn't speak in the church. Some of these things are definitely related, but in the end, I mean, this episode is very specifically on women holding office in like public, you know, in a public elected official capacity. But I mean, but we're actually going to talk about that in a in a broader sense as well. Which you know, the verse, one of the core verses there is is pretty relevant in the language it uses. First Timothy two. 12 through 15. I do not permit a woman to teach or to have authority over a man, but to be in silence. For Adam was formed first, then Eve. And Adam was not deceived, but the woman being deceived fell into transgression. Nevertheless, she will be saved in childbearing if they continue in faith, love, and holiness with self-control. And, you know, obviously he's speaking in the church in terms of women speaking in church. But, you know, the language he uses and the arguments he uses are broader than that because he's talking about women having authority over a man and he's talking about uh, going back to the creation order of Adam being formed first and then Eve, which, you know, going when he goes back to creation, he's, you know, the, the principle that follows from that is not strictly about the church because, you know, all of creation, every institution goes back to Adam and Eve. So when we think about the order and the idea of Adam and Eve, it's it's ordering everything because all social orders, and we see this in the church, right? Like you know, somebody mentioned that, you know, we did a podcast on that women shouldn't speak in church. I mean, that's First Corinthians fourteen thirty four, which is explicit. They have to stay silent in church, and we know that the head's the man. Or excuse me, the husband's the the head of the wife. You know, that's in First Corinthians eleven. That's in other places. That's in you know, Ephesians 5. And so as we think of these things, it's actually, you have to twist scripture to make it so that it's, it doesn't apply, especially because of the argument of Adam and Eve, that it doesn't apply in the civil magistrate. Why not? When Paul says, I do not permit a woman to teach her to have authority over a man. Well, somebody that's a civil magistrate, they have authority and they have real authority. That idea of Adam, right? Adam is also the word for mankind. When God made man, he made Adam. And that's mankind. That, if you use that word, that's both men and women. That's not just men. It can be, you know. But there is a different word, Ayusha, Ayush. I don't know how to pronounce the Hebrew very well, but that's the word that's actually used in eighteen in Exodus eighteen twenty one. Moreover, you shall select from all the people able men, such as fear God, men of truth, hating covetousness. And place such over them to be rulers of thousands, rulers of hundreds, rulers of fifties, and rulers of tens. That word. That's translated men there. That's translated men there. Thank you, rather than me trying to butcher the Hebrew again. That word is not, that word is not mankind. That's not used for that. That word is used for men. That is male. That's used for husband. That's used, that's very specific. So this isn't. To take this and say, well, man, you know, that could be men or women. No, he's actually chose a word that's very clear that it's talking about men, males, husbands. Right. right. Because, you know, I mean, one, one kind of counter argument to this line of thought is, hey, well, it says women uh, cannot have authority over a man. But there are examples like, you know, mothers having authority over their sons, you know, perhaps, you know, a Proverbs 31 woman owning a company, having servants, you know, now they, she has authority over them. But this is making it more specific to say, well, actually, this same thing applies because here it's saying males as in men, not males or not men as in mankind. Right. And I think it's probably worth pointing out. I mean, in one sense. So if, if you've watched our videos in general, I mean, we come to Scripture with a particular hermeneutic. I mean, if you look, we have videos on the law where we talk about the Old Testament, and the New Testament. You know, so there is a part of it where 
to hold these views, you have to believe that the Old Testament and the New Testament aren't in conflict with one another. That, you know, that the God of the Old Testament is not fundamentally different than the God of the New Testament. That the order established in the Old Testament isn't completely turned on its head in every way in the New Testament. That there are things that God does change as he goes along, but there are certain things that he established from the beginning. And like you can see in Timothy, where it's talking and it's making an argument from creation. And Scripture does this in a lot of places. So, I mean, there is this part of it where to hold these positions and to have these interpretations, you do have to come to Scripture with a certain hermeneutic. We do believe that all Scripture interprets other Scripture and that Scripture harmonizes with itself. Scripture doesn't contradict itself. And there are positions that you can hold. There are positions that people have. And the problem with them is, is they don't agree with all of Scripture. They start to turn these things on their head. They start to say, well, here... You know, well, just because it says men here doesn't mean it actually means men. And it doesn't, you know, and, and if you do that, like I said, now husband starts to become something other than man and wife starts to become something other than woman. And so these things really do, they touch on a huge number of doctrines. We're not going to explain all the doctrines, but there is this part of it where, as we've done other episodes, we're trying to be consistent with that same view of Scripture. And, I mean, one thing as we consider that hermeneutic that's worth saying is, you know, there's kind of a modern thought that somehow the New Testament kind of trumps the Old Testament. But that's not the right way to think of Scripture because they're all the words of Christ, right? He's the Word of God. The Bible is the Word of God. The New Testament is clarifying the Old Testament, not replacing it. Right. And that's a, that's a fundamental hermeneutic where, and let's be serious, if you don't take that hermeneutic where you take it that it replaced it, you've accepted bestiality, you've accepted a lot of things that are very evil, you've accepted incest. That's nowhere in the New Testament. But if you take it the way that it's meant to be, where you have said of old, you shall not commit murder, but I say to you, don't right. be angry with your brother. Then you're saying that Christ came and said, you're misinterpreting things in the Old Testament, and I'm going to clarify them so that you understand what was said in the Old Testament. So when we take a verse like Exodus, that's how we should be thinking about it, is God clarified it. And when you look where he clarified it, it's like in 1 Corinthians 14. You know, for God is not the author of confusion, but of peace, as in all the churches of the saints. Let your women keep silent in the churches, for they are not permitted to speak, but they are to be submissive, as the law also says. So God's pointing back to the law and saying, you know from the law that they're supposed to be under authority. You know that, that they're under authority of their husband, but also that civilly they're under authority. And in the church they're under authority. All the priests had to be men. I mean, this is the pattern of the Old Testament and the pattern of the New and when it says it points back to the law, somebody could say, where does it say these things? And there are times where Scripture uses the law and really, I mean, broad, where, I mean, Genesis is considered, you know, even the creation account is considered to be part of the law. But it's in a lot of places. It's in, it's in the lever at marriage where if a man dies and the wife has, so the brother marries the, the wife and raises up seed to his brother. This is a picture of the wife's submissive. I mean, the woman is treated in a way where she is submissive to her husband and she has obligations to her husband. And this can even cause her to have to marry someone that she may not want to marry. It's in the law where it talks about that if a daughter lives in the household of her father, who's a priest, she can, she can eat of the, the showbread. But if she gets married to someone who's not a Levite, she can no longer eat of the showbread. But then if she comes back and lives in his house again, she can eat of it. And so her position and her authority under these things 
it's it's in many, 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 many places throughout the law. It's not just in one place. It's not just in one area, but it's all throughout Scripture that, that God gives these pictures. And then in the New Testament, he, like I said, clarifies them and then even starts connecting them so that we can understand how the church and how the and how Christ and the, the, the gospel actually plays out in the world. So these things aren't, they're not even just neutral. People will sometimes say these were cultural things, but God's saying, no, these are, these transcend culture because they, point forward to the new heavens and the new earth. So, I mean, they, they can't just be these these passing cultural things. And that's things. why it's important to get it right. I mean, you use the word gospel there. And, and you go throughout Scripture, the relationship of men and women, particularly husbands and wives, is used as a picture of the gospel. In the Old Testament, it's the gospel to come. In the New Testament, it's a, hey, the mystery's been revealed. So when we talk about the relationship of men and women, we talk about these sex roles that people have, we're talking about ways that God has given us representations of how he relates to his people in the world. So it's important that we get it right and not be casual about it in any sphere. And so we're talking about it, you know, the really specific one of politics. Ephesians 5, where it says that it's the gospel revealed, right? That it's about Christ and the church. Well, Christ is the king. The church is not the king. Christ is the king. And so you have to connect it back just to be, you know, really focused on the civil magistrate. Jesus Christ is the king of kings, the king of kings. The church is not the queen of queens. She is not in charge. And when we start to say that women can be in charge in the government now, we are really saying that we can flip the gospel on its head. So just like Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 14 that, you know, it's confusion when you do this. We should recognize it's confusion when you do this now. It's confusion when you have women be civil magistrates, and it creates all kinds of confusion. And you mentioned a minute ago, you know, people say it's a cultural thing. Um, but, but you know, you, you look at that, and what culture in all of human history until the last few decades has uh, had women leadership as the normative pattern? I mean, there might be ones out there. I'm not aware of them. And so we might say, well, it's a, it's a cultural thing in Israel and every other nation over hundreds of years. It, it, it's, it's where you get to the point where Paul also talks about, you know, nature and itself teaches you that the woman is supposed to have long hair. And it's, you're, you're basically at the same level. I mean, nature teaches you this. And there's been cultures that I can think of where it was the sister of the king's son that would become king, but it's the woman doesn't become king, even though it's not separating and saying the power can't flow through the woman. It's that the woman doesn't become king. And right. and even in England, of, that's very modern. The and idea there's been that, plenty of queens, but there haven't been societies where for hundreds of years there's been all queens or majority queens. It's just when the king has no male offspring. And let me know in the comments of the, uh, the society that does it, <laughs> because there might be a society that's done it, and that's not going to dispute the fact that they're most the vast majority of them don't right some people will point to the fact that jews kind of did the matrilineal line of where they figure out where people come from that's not really that's not female leadership there have been some matriarchal short-lived society i mean but in the end like you said they're generally novelties in the history of the world and so so now you know modern cultures which you know if you have any type of biblical worldview you recognize that you know men and women men and women's roles are very messed up in modern culture and now we're going to say that well because we have it therefore it must be a good thing even though we're messed up in a lot of other areas and i, I think i probably said this because i say this a lot and you know when you start to say that men and women have the same role 
you will not stop homosexuality. You have to accept it. If you say that men should have the same role as women and women should have the same role as men, then why can't a man marry a man? Because all that man is doing is taking the role of a woman. And we think we can draw a line. We think we can accept it here and here and here. We can accept it as pastors. We can accept it in the civil magistrate. But no, we are against homosexual marriage. No, you already embraced it. You just haven't thought through your position, so you're inconsistent. You're just illogical, not that you're against homosexuality. These two are tied directly together. You either say there's different roles or you say there can't be. If there can't be different roles, you cannot argue honestly against homosexuality. We've, we've talked about a handful of, of pretty, we would say, pretty clear didactic passages in Scripture. But Scripture actually has a lot more to say about this, and there are cases where it gives examples that are worth walking through. One of them is in Isaiah 3, verses 10 to 12. And this is where Isaiah is enumerating curses that are going to come upon Israel for disobedience. One of those curses is, Say to the righteous that it shall be well with them, for they shall eat the fruit of their doings. Woe to the wicked, it shall be ill with him, for the reward of his hands shall be given him. As for my people, children are their oppressors, and women rule over them. O oh, my people, those who lead you cause you to err and destroy the way of your paths. And you know, probably one of the one of the worst curses is when when you have a curse on you and you don't recognize uh, that it's a curse. Where you're saying it's a good thing, and you know, when you're and when you read the scripture, you know, it's saying that you know this nation's under judgment. A sign of that is women ruling over them. And if we're saying, well, that's a good thing, that's what we're wanting, that's what we're pushing for, we want more representation of women in government, well, now we're, we're kind of asking for this you know, manifestation of a curse. And that's what the you know, quote-unquote Christian you know, evangelical party, the Republicans, is doing. And they're pushing very hard for it. And we should just recognize that, that this is not people that are pushing for a righteous, godly position. These are people that are pushing for a political agenda that plays well with the world. And you should be very clear. The Christian, the Republican Party has has openly embraced homosexuality. I mean, don't 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 deceive yourself. Don't trick yourself. I mean, it is it openly accepts homosexuality. And so there's this part. And and like you were saying before, you can't you can't separate the two. It's already moved farther along. And so in the church, there are plenty of there are plenty of religious denominations out there today that are fighting the fight within their ranks over what do we do with you know practicing Christian homosexuals. Think the PCA or, is about or, to split again. Right, well, oh, right. That you're a homosexual, but you're not, but you're a celibate homosexual. Or I mean, so just, I mean, understand, I mean, it's, it's the experiment's been run. It's, it's, it's already in the church or in different parts of the church. So, I mean, you, you, you can't pretend like this isn't there. And, you know, when I went on my rant about homosexuality, I mean, recognize what this also says. You know, it's important because it says here, as for my people, children are their oppressors and women rule over them. I said, when you get to the point where you can't tell the difference between when you say women have the same role as men, the reality is that happens the same with children, is that if you can't tell the difference between men and women, you can't tell the difference between adults and children, and you end up having children be your oppressors. And you know we see this quite a bit in our society where children are the oppressors because as our society, we're saying that a child should be able to go and do whatever he wants to do. Pedophilia is on an increase. I mean. Everywhere we're having trouble telling the difference between adults and children because we can't tell the difference between men and women. Right. And those two, you know, this verse is tying them both together. These are both signs of judgment. I mean, there's a part of, I mean, look, in the United States right now, people wouldn't, 
you know, a child can't have a cell phone if their parents don't give it to them, but the child could potentially go and have surgery to change their, could choose to have surgery to change their gender. And I mean, and this could be, you know, our child could choose to have an abortion to kill, you know, to kill the baby. And then maybe even the child has to say that they you know, want to have the abortion if the abortion is going to go through. I mean, we've. And there's cases where a child walked in one day and said, I'm her today, she, her or whatever the pronoun stuff and then the next day they go i'm he him and she calls her her and the teacher gets fired that's children being oppressors right and, and you know there there's some famous examples in scripture you know like deborah you know i guess would be the deborah would be the the the, the main example you know of women in in rulership and, and uh i think we're going to talk about her in more detail in a second um but one thing to note from this verse is it doesn't say that the woman who's ruling is necessarily sinning. Um, now, what situations would that be? Well, Deborah's one of them, and we'll see it in a minute. You know, you have other situations like, um, you know, Lady Jane Grey in England, where, you know, was she seeking authority? Was she um, trying to take on authority for men? Or were people saying, well, we're limited by, you know, it needs to be a descendant of the king, and so we're going to pick the only Protestant, which is her. You know, were, were they making the wrong decision? Was she making the wrong decision? Well, the, the point isn't that every woman in authority is necessarily wrong. Now, that said, it would be, it's hard to justify a woman running for office in, you know, a congressional district with thousands of people and to say there are no men, so I must run. That That's hard to justify. Right. It's very different where, the laws of your nation say that the the firstborn child, like in England now, says that the firstborn child, male or female, will become the ruler, the sovereign of England. And so if you're the firstborn child and you're a woman, is it wrong to become the, the queen of England? I don't know. That's following the law. Should you submit to the law? I think there's some legitimate things there. And the sin is in the nation. The sin isn't necessarily in the person. But again, that's very different than somebody seeking that office, somebody who desires and says there aren't any women or any men, so I'll, I'll run instead. There's even examples in America where, you know, a man, you know, a congressman's reelected, he dies, his widow gets appointed to uh, that place. Now, you know, is it categorically wrong for her to accept? Well, maybe, um, but, you know, it's, it's not necessarily as easy as to saying a woman may never be in office. It's a little more complicated than that. One of the points that we made in the last podcast was that it's really clear that somebody gets an office because God wants them there. That God is the one ultimately who appoints somebody to an office. And we need to make a distinction between the person who's in that office and our responsibility in selecting that person. That's, you know, so we're, we're, we're working from, hey, what kind of job do I have when I go to the poll and I pick somebody versus ultimately who does God put in that position? And even like you said, even the person seeking that position, their desire to seek it. But once they're in that position, they really have authority. And I think right. that's what's, I mean, that's very important. And I think you can be very clear on that, that there's this part of it where, I mean, if, you know, if a woman runs in North Carolina, she becomes a senator, she really is a senator. She is due, she is due all the honor, honor, the honor, <laughs> a senator deserves honor. 
Um, as a, if a woman gets elected as a senator in North Carolina, she deserves all the honor that a male senator would get in that place. She deserves all the respect. She deserves anything that she does in that office has the full weight of, of, a, of a man doing it in that office. And I think and there's a part of it where people want to sometimes use the fact that God says we should not appoint them to somehow negate their authority. And that's wrong. And, and that's true for everybody, right? It's true regardless of how wicked they are, whatever. You're, you know, when Paul's writing to give honor to civil magistrates, Nero is probably the emperor. And he's saying Nero should be honored. Right. And so for all the, you know, women, uh, Republican congressmen from <clears throat> California, probably not a good idea, who are listening to the episode, of course, <laughs> probably not a good idea to resign immediately. It's not always women's fault when, I mean, my point in saying this isn't to actually remove blame from women that they deserve. Because if a woman seeks an office she, that she shouldn't have and she knows what God's word has said, this is wrong. She should not do that. She should not do it at all. But there's a part of it where men frequently play a part in what's been going on in the world with the view of women. I mean, mm -hmm. and this is, I mean, there's a verse in Genesis that talks about after the fall, it talks about how the man will rule over his wife. And it talks about how that her desire will be for him. And there, there's, there's going to be this tension within the marriage. And anybody who's married can see this. There, there are times where it's very easy for a man to hand his authority to his wife in a way that he shouldn't have. He'll let her take responsibility. If she's willing to take responsibility that he should do, he'll let her have that. And he'll step back and he'll, you know, you, and you look at our culture. I mean, there are men who are lazy. There are men who have no interest in leading and their wives are willing to take it over for them and the men give it to them. And there's this, there's this compromise within the relationship. And so there's this part of it where, I mean, men don't get a pass. This isn't like women have usurped the role of men without men and that men have fought against it and we've and we you know no men have been complicit in this and men have men have been very glad to see this happen and it very often starts in the home and it starts in the church yeah think about the cases of the church and i'm not talking about cases of of liberal denominations that just you know women priests i'm talking about your your good local conservative church that believes that only men should be elders only men should be deacons but then Practically speaking, you get all of these committees that are led by women, and the majority of the work in the church is done by women. You know, the church is really led by women, other than the pastor who gets up and preaches on Sunday morning. And the deacons. Don't forget the deacons. <laughs> <clears throat> right. So, you know, I mean, and it's, it's, it's easy to see in those cases that, that women are just saying, well, nobody's doing it, so I'm going to do it, you know, because— they're right. The men are being passive. They're not doing it. There's work to be done. A woman steps and says, I'm going to do the work. I mean, you're just saying that what happens, what, what was predicted to happen in Genesis actually gets played out. It gets played out in real ways, including politics. Right. First Timothy says that women, you know, Eve was deceived and that there's a pattern there that, that, you know, the church is deceiving women into thinking that because men won't do it, that they should do it and that's a deception and we should just that's deception and the woman that's the being the civil magistrate going well there's no men that will stand up that will stand on principle there's no one who will fight for my children so i have to be the you know i have to be the the soccer mom that's running for office well part of that is that the church isn't going no you don't you need to care for your children and the church is participating in that deception it's the men in the church, because that way they get out of doing the work, that are, are leading that deception. But we should recognize that this is what happens, is that, 
that the church is actively working to deceive women to say on that committee, nobody's going to do the work unless you do it. As opposed to what First Peter 3 says, what she's supposed to do is not be aggressively trying to seek it and say, nobody else is going to do it, so I'm going to do it. No, it's by their meek and submissive spirit that's pleasing to God. And we just we did our episode recently about creating a culture of life, and one of the things that we talked about was for a society to continue, they have to have like 2.3 children per family, you know, per household, per per individual, per woman, per woman, <laughs> 2.3 children. I mean, and so there's this part of it where when you talk, I mean, and I remember one of the things is people just forget that literally this is talking about a national extinction event you know, at the national level. So, I mean, when you talk about that God has designed it so that the purpose of bearing children and raising children is so important that this is something that has been given to women, this isn't like, well, it doesn't matter really. That No, it's, it's literally whether your nation will continue. It's whether your nation will continue to exist on the face of the earth. And, and so whenever you make it like, hey, having a children is totally just a choice that we all make. It's something that we decide whether we want to do. No, God decides how many children people have. God's really clear. God says, I open and close the womb. God talks about these things throughout Scripture. And again, so there's this part of it where, I mean, no, there's this duty, and the family is structured in a way so that a nation who follows after God, that nation will not be wiped off the face of the earth because they don't bear children. Right. We're, we talk about climate change, how everybody's going to die. We talk about nuclear war, how everybody's going to die. We talk – and, you know, how many died because of abortion? In the U.S., 65 – there's no way that a nuclear war would kill as many people as abortion killed. Right. And we're looking and we're going, oh, these are these horrible cataclysmic events. And you look at the birth rate in Europe. You look at the birth rate in the United States. You look at the birth rate in Canada. You look at the birth rate in China. You look at the birth rate in Japan. All these nations are being destroyed. And they will be destroyed unless something happens versus they're not going to be destroyed because of climate change, not by nuclear war, not by any of these other things that they keep acting like, oh, no, 10 million people died because of COVID. That's a drop in the bucket compared to how many we've killed because we've said women shouldn't be raising children. When we talk about this and we talk about, you know, in Isaiah 3, it being a curse, it comes back to the same thing. When you go into the, into the voting booth, are you going to love your neighbor or are you going to curse your neighbor? Because it's really a choice. Because if God says, I've got to curse America by having women leaders, which he has, do you then vote for it to say, I want to curse my neighbor? Or do you vote against it saying, yeah, God raised up the leaders he wants to raise up, but I'm not going to participate in it. I would argue loving your neighbor requires you not to participate in the cursing of your neighbor. That's a really revolutionary thing to say. Loving your neighbor requires not cursing them. <laughs> I, I thought it was almost a tautology. <laughs> so, I mean, and, and when you were talking before about the, that, you know, women will say men aren't doing what they should be doing, you know, and so I have to step up and do this. That is, that is most commonly what I hear people using as an argument to try to fit the story of Deborah into. And Deborah's story does not conform to that narrative at all. We read in Judges 4, 4 through 10. Now Deborah, a prophetess, the wife, uh, the wife. Now Deborah, a prophetess, the wife of Lapidoth, was judging Israel at that time, and she would sit under the palm tree of Deborah between Ramah and Bethel in the mountains of Ephraim. And the children of Israel came up to her for judgment. 
Then she sent and called for Barak, the son of Abinoam, from Kadesh and Naphtali, and said to him, Has not the Lord God of Israel commanded, Go and deploy troops at Mount Tabor? Take with you ten thousand men of the sons of Naphtali and of the sons of Zebulun. I will deploy Sisera, the commander of Japan's army, with his chariots and his multitude at the river Kishon, and I will deliver him into your hand. And Barak said to her, If you will go with me, then I will go. But if you will not go with me, I will not go. So she said, I will surely go with you. Nevertheless, there will be no glory for you in the journey you are taking, for the Lord will sell Sisera into the hand of a woman. Then Deborah rose and went with Barak to Kedesh. And Barak called Zebulun and Naphtali to Kedesh. He went up with 10,000 men under his command, and Deborah went up with him. Deborah was a judge in Israel. Deborah was a prophetess. There were people who would come, and they would, they would ask questions to her, and she would give them answers. And Barak was the person who was supposed to go and do what God had commanded him. Barak was supposed to rule and have authority in this way with the, with the, with the troops, and this was his job to do. And he said to her, I won't go, I'll only go and do this if you'll come with me. And she says, I'll go with you, but understand you're going to lose your honor by if you if you take me with you, God's going to God's going to give all the glory to a woman. And he says, I want you to go with me. And and it's it's it does not fit into the narrative of Deborah didn't say, well, I'm going to go and deploy the troops. Deborah didn't say, well, you're not willing to do it, then I'll do it. I mean, it doesn't fit into the narrative that everyone tries to plug it into. It fits into a very different narrative where the person in authority said, I'm not willing to go unless you go with me. And she went. And we make judging out to be something that, different than it was. We make it out to be an appointed civil position when it was just somebody who was wise and that they would make judgments. They would come to her and they would go, you understand God better than we do? What do you think should happen in this case? And, and she would say, I think you should... Right, that's what the church should be, exactly. But notice it also starts with the wife of Lipidoth. I mean, it's not like saying that somehow she's outside of authority. It actually acknowledges that she's under authority in when it introduces her, right? right? Because usually for men, it says who their father is. And for her, it says who her husband is, because that's who has authority over her. And then it goes on, right? And it doesn't say that she commanded him to go up. She's a prophetess. She says, has not the Lord God of Israel commanded go and deploy the troops, right? It's not her. She's in that statement. There's no exercise of authority at all. All she's doing is saying, this is what God said, right? Has not God commanded this? And I think, th and, there's, and this, is, this is a really good example because, I mean, I do think in the church today, there are churches where if a woman looked at someone and said, isn't this the right thing to do? There are people who would say, mind your place. And, and, and that's bad. And, and that's bad. <laughs> And there are also, there are women who are not willing to do, because I mean, women don't realize the power and the authority, that the, the influence that they really have in the world. I mean, when my wife looks at me, when I say we're going to do something, and she looks at me and goes, but we shouldn't do that, should we? That has a huge effect on me. I mean, it's it's a, it's a, I mean, there are times where I don't like it. There are times where, well, <laughs> well, there are times that you do like it. That's the real question. Right. I mean, and there, but I mean, I, but I do, I always appreciate it. And I mean, in the end, I'm very grateful for her doing this where my wife says to me, isn't this what God's told you? Isn't this what you've taught the children? Isn't this what the Lord has taught you? Know, aren't, look at, you know, and it's, yeah, I mean, <laughs> I mean, and there's this part of it where we don't want to do what God's actually asked us to do. The woman doesn't, and so there are places where the church is wrong in its view of women. There are places where a woman comes and she speaks to people and says, God says we should do this, we should do this, we should care for these people, and she can get shouted down. And the church is evil for doing that. 
But there are plenty of times where people go, unless I can have authority over them, unless I can rule over them, I'm not willing to have this role that God has given me. And, and both of those are shameful. The end of the passage, I mean, it couldn't be clearer. He went up with 10,000 men under Deborah's, no, it says under his command. And Deborah went up with him. Who was commanding the army? It wasn't Deborah. She didn't have authority over it. And he says even him asking her to go with him without authority because he commanded the army, God even says, look, you're not going to receive any glory for this because you're insisting that I go up and a woman will kill Sisera and jail, you know, puts the stake through his head and all that stuff because he's not saying Deborah run the army. He's saying, I have this role. I have to command this army, but you come with me. And so the people who take this to say, well, this means Deborah is a valid, you know, is a ruler and is a civil magistrate. Well, that's the opposite of what the passage says. So, so, so we've established that, I mean, she wasn't a ruler and that she wasn't commanded the army. Uh, she was a prophetess in a way that perhaps would make some people uncomfortable. Um, <laughs> so, so what about, what about the judging? Um, because I mean, there's different, you know, is, is this different? How is this different from, you know, our judges today? I mean, they sit in a courtroom and not under a palm tree. Um, but you know, I think it, it, we don't have a ton of information here about what the judging is that she that she's doing and how formal it was and how binding it was. You know, you have a lot of other rulers in the book of Judges, all the judges, you know, Samson, um, you know, a bunch of judges, um, and, and they don't have a king. And so the judges in some way are taking on some of the roles that would be in a more formal civil magistrate seat. But I think most of the judges that you look in the book of Judges that have that they also have command of the army. They're also going up and fighting. And so, you know, the the judges that aren't doing that, I mean, I don't think you have many examples of that. And so just because judges do that, it doesn't mean that's what judging requires. It doesn't say they had to come up to her. It's that the children of Israel came up to her for judgment. It seems to me that even in the language of that, it's not by compulsion. They're just saying she makes good decisions. She looks at a situation and says, this is the right thing to do. And even the other judges didn't have the authority to bind it unless they also had command of an army that they could force people to do it. It was because people went, they're wise. We're going to listen to it. Or two people could agree together. Well, whatever Deborah says, that's what we'll accept. And people it's do like that binding all the time arbitration today, right? Now. I was going to say, it's, yeah, it's, you can right now you can go and you can have I can have a dispute with Jonathan and we could go and say we're going to go to an arbitrator and we're, we're going to go to this person. We'll write an agreement that will accept his judgment. And that I mean, he doesn't have to be an appointed judge. He doesn't have to be, you know, I mean, and, and in the New Testament, Paul says to the church, why are you going out to people? You should have people within you who should judge. Don't you understand that the church will judge angels? And so there's this part of it where, I mean, Deborah is very much a picture of the church, in a sense, judging in the household of God. I mean, and so there's this, I mean, there is this part of it where, and I do think what Jonathan, Joshua said, not just her being a prophetess would make some people uncomfortable, but the fact that people went to her for judgment, I think, would make people uncomfortable. I, I do think we should point out, I think just in fairness, is Everything that happened during the time of the judges is not necessarily something that is prescriptive for all types of cult, that it's, that it's not the best. 
And and again, I mean, I, I I don't know that I have any problem with if there was a woman who was wise. If two people said I need to go to her and I'm gonna and she makes good judgment, I don't know that I would have any fundamental issue with that. But it doesn't mean that. You know, I mean, so you also don't want to go that everything that happened in Judges, because you read through Judges, there were some really bad and dark times and places in Judges. Israel was not in the best place in many different times through here. And it was like Sodom, right? Right. At times with Benjamin. Even if you look at, even if you look at this and you you want to take a different interpretation of what the meaning of judgment is and, and what the status of her as a prophetess is, if you if you have a different perspective than the hermeneutic we've offered, you still have to deal with Isaiah three, where Isaiah three is God speaking is is <laughs> God speaking and saying that this is a sign of curse on a people for a woman to be a ruler. It's not saying that the woman is wicked. It's not saying that the woman, in her act of ruling, is doing something she shouldn't be doing necessarily. But it is saying this is how God is evaluating the situation and one of the punishments that he's imposing. So if that's if if you have a different reading on Deborah than we had, go ahead and take that reading and then plug it into Isaiah three and say, right. what does Deborah's position here mean? God thinks about Israel at this time. And I think it's worth, you know, basically reading the rest of Isaiah 3 so that we find out what God says he's going to do to Israel for that, which is, you know, Isaiah three sixteen through, you know, chapter 4, verse 1. Moreover, the Lord said, because the daughters of Zion are haughty and walk with outstretched necks and wanton eyes, walking and mincing as they go, making a jingling with their feet, therefore the Lord will strike with a scab the crown of the head of the daughters of Zion. And the Lord will uncover their secret parts. In that day, the Lord will take away their finery, the jingling anklets, the scarves and the crescents, the pendants, the bracelets and the veils, the headdresses and the leg ornaments and the headbands, the perfume boxes, the charms and the rings, the nose jewels, the festal apparel and the mantles, the outer garment, the purses and the mirrors, the fine linen, the turbans and the robes. And so it shall be, instead of a sweet smell, there will be a stench. Instead of a sash, a rope. Instead of a well-set hair, baldness. Instead of a rich robe, a girding of sackcloth. And branding instead of beauty. Your men shall fall by the sword, and your mighty in the war. Her gates shall lament and warn, and she, shall, she being desolate shall sit on the ground. And in that day seven women shall take hold of one man, saying, We will eat our own food and wear our own apparel. Only let us be called by your name to take away our reproach. That's what God says he's going to cause because the women are ruling over them. It's not that God just goes, oh, it's not a big deal. It's this is the beginning of cursing, and it's going to get a lot worse until you repent. And, you know, it says seven women are, because the men all died by the sword, remember, that seven women are going to say, just give me your name. They're not going to, right, they're going to want to be in that position of being under authority again. So when you hear what God says he's going to do to a people, after he curses them by having children be their oppressors and by having women rule over them, is he destroys them and destroys the men so that the women are begging a man to, to be her head. And we should remember, you know, as we go through this in the, in the New Testament, you know, it talks about Jezebel in, in Revelation and how the church has adopted the doctrine of Jezebel. Remember Jezebel? Je- Jezebel was the one that kept trying to usurp authority from, from Ahab. And, you know, oh, don't worry about it. I'll take care of him, you know. And then her daughter, or was it her grand? I think it was her daughter, ends up ruling, you know, over over Judah. 
And so when we think about this, this is the picture in Scripture that we have, not Deborah. Deborah's the, the judge and the prophetess who's saying, don't put me in charge. You shouldn't need this. The woman that has in charge, you need to ask yourself, do you really want to follow, follow Jezebel? Because that's who you're following. And there's a part of where, I mean, just while we're talking about Deborah and when we're talking about her being a prophetess, I mean, prophecy gets confused a lot. I mean, the prophecy does have an aspect of foretelling the future, but the core of prophecy is proclaiming the truth of God. And there's this part of where Deborah is a, like we said before, she's a picture of the church. Scripture talks about, you know, in Proverbs about wisdom is out in the streets. It's proclaiming truth. It talks about how, I mean, the church sometimes wants authority that it won't ever have. The church's real authority is to speak the truth of God. Mm -hmm. It is to proclaim it. And the church is a woman. I mean, the church is the wife of Jesus Christ. And so when we get women wrong, we get the church wrong. When we get their authority wrong, we get our relationship with Jesus Christ wrong. I mean, but the church is this glorious thing. And so when Deborah goes to him and says, didn't God command this? This is what the church does in the world, is the church is telling people, God commanded you to do this. You need to do this. God told you to lead in this way. God told you to proclaim these things. God told you that men are men. God told you that women are women. I mean, so, I mean, I just think there's this part of it where, I mean, we need to go back and get the right message from Deborah. And like I said, don't take the wrong things. Don't take just one snapshot of a culture at a time where God was even causing some judgment to be on them and say this is prescriptive for every type of thing. But in the end, there is a part of it that we should take away. We should take as this is a righteous role for a woman to have in the world is to speak the true words of God. And it's a big problem when, you know, you look at the Roman Catholic Church. At times, the Roman Catholic Church, right, not a true church, but still pretending to be the bride of Christ, they took the sword. Right. They've done that many times. And it's an absolute disaster when the church picks up the sword. The church is not supposed to wield the sword. Wield the sword of the word, absolutely. Right. But not the physical sword, which is very different than Christians wielding the sword because it's valid for a Christian to be a civil magistrate. But the church itself should never wield the sword. And when we start to say that women should be a position of the civil magistrate, that literally means that they wield the sword. And that's not what the church should do. And the church should be fighting against that because there's plenty of times in history where the church has apostatized so that they started doing that. And I do think there's this, there is a part of it where a woman, if she says that speaking the truth of God isn't enough, she should. there's a part of it where what we're saying is, is the role of the church isn't enough. You know what I mean? Right. And so those things, like you're saying— Even it, though it will overthrow all the kingdoms of the earth, as it says in Daniel 2. Right. And so, I mean, it is It is an incredible power that she's been given. It is an incredible position that she's been given. And let's not—we are not attacking it. We are trying to glorify it. So we should also recognize just how dramatically our nation has moved in the last 145 years. Because there was uh, Bradwell— and, you know, the case was settled, I think, in 1873. The Supreme Court made a decision. But Bradwell was trying to become a, an attorney in Illinois. And so just to understand where the country was, because it's so easy for us to see these things around us and just think this is all normal. This is how it's always been. But it says the harmony, not to say identity of interests and views which belong or should belong to the family institution, is repugnant to the idea of a woman adopting a distinct and independent career from that of her husband. So firmly fixed was the sentiment in the founders of the common law that became a maxim of that system of jurisprudence that a woman had no legal existence separate from her husband who was regarded as her head and representative in the social state. 
right? Because this is where you get down that you have the male as the, you know, why the head of household was the only one that was allowed to vote is because they're representing the household. And if you go back to Exodus 18, it says, you know, leaders of tens, fifties, hundreds, thousands, and that really is talking about households. And so that's how they were counted. So that's the direction you would go for voting, as you'd say that the male heads of household is the representative of the whole household. I mean, we, I think we've talked about this in other episodes, but I mean, there's this part of it where when you talk about like not having an existence independent of, of her husband, if I walked onto the Senate floor, I have no existence in that in that area. There would, if I began speaking, well, after they arrested you and drugged well, you, well, out. that's what I mean. Is they would they would treat me as is right? You have no place here. And if I started to speak, they would go. No one is listening to anything that you have to say. You're not allowed to speak here. You don't have authority to speak here. When the president of the United States comes to the Senate, he must be recognized to speak there. The president of the United States does not have intrinsic authority to go into the Senate and speak. He must be recognized. He must be invited to speak. And so there's this part of it where, I mean, we've this particular, I'm not going to say that I don't know the whole ruling. I don't know everything. I can't say that they got every nuance of everything right. I mean, men don't. But the arguments made in this ruling are much more, I mean, many reformed churches today in the United States would go, I can't follow and understand exactly what's being argued here. And that they, I mean, this is more righteous than many of the views held by churches today in the United States who would say that that they follow God's word and that they follow confessions. Let me read another part of the decision because they did, some states were doing things wrong because it says that they had no existence separate from the social existence of their husband, but sometimes they would say that they had no existence after their husband died, so they wouldn't allow them to own property and things. So I don't want to say that they were right, right, but they were trying to take the view that the woman, that the man is the head of the woman, and so therefore – she shouldn't have a separate social existence. But then it also makes it really clear how important the woman's role is, which is what I think we've even lost more as a society. The natural and proper timidity and delicacy, which belongs to the female sex, evidently unfits it for many of the occupations of civil life. The paramount destiny and mission of women are to fulfill the noble and benign office of wife and mother. This is the law of the creator. And so you can't, and they recognize this, that we've lost and the church is lost. You cannot exalt and say, well, how come, how come we don't have 50% women in office and 50% men? Why is it 80% and 20%? We need to fix this. And the church talks about this. I mean, it's not rejected as an idea in the church. And we need to just understand that in when we do that, we're rejecting the idea that women are, cha- are saved through childbirth, which is what Paul writes. This is what the role of the woman is, not that there's no way to the father except through the son. Paul's not disagreeing with himself about that. But the idea is, is that this is such an important role that them fulfilling what they were created to do, this is what they're supposed to be doing. And you can't say to be a civil magistrate is so important without saying to raise children isn't important. And that's the choice we've made. That's the choice the church has made to say it's so important that women become civil magistrates that we will hate our children. And, you know, when you think about the general thrust of of the culture from the 1870s to now, and you realize to say something like a woman should have no 
social existence in the public sphere apart from her husband, you realize how absolutely offensive that is. It's even it's even hard to hear that as as somebody who knows what they're trying to say. I mean, it's just it's like, oh my goodness, they're so out of touch. But but you think about what they're getting at. They're getting at the truth that Scripture says that the wife is a picture of the church and the husband is a picture of Christ. And if you want to say that a wife has a separate social existence than her husband, what you're effectively saying is the church doesn't need Christ, that there's areas where the church doesn't need Christ. There's areas where yeah, the church doesn't need salvation. And that's just, I mean, you know, that's where you say, okay, the gospel's at stake right. with something like this. And whatever we want to do. <laughs> as embarrassing as the language might be. As, embarrassing, the as embarrassing as the language is, we also have promises or commands in Scripture of don't be ashamed of the gospel. Mm -hmm. It's shameful that it's embarrassing. You know what I mean? And it, I mean, and, Because it wasn't embarrassing to them. Right. It's shameful that the church has failed to preach the gospel to the point where it's embarrassing. And I mean, and I think we've just, we've lost how much language and everything drifts with it. I mean, there were times where if you saw a man out in public, you would call him by his last name, Mr. So-and-so. There's a part of it where because he was, you were speaking to him as a representative of his family. And so the last name was the part of that he was a representative of his family. And you would only use his first name when you were talking to him about personal issues. Because in the end, then you were talking about something that was just about him. Because he didn't have the freedom of being just him in many things. Because he was the representative of an entire family. And he had to consider all of them, their interests and everything that they had. And what he did and the way he, you know what I mean? The way he moved through the world. And all of these things. I mean, so I think there's this part of where yeah, we think. And of, women would be called Mrs. Right. Right. And, we, and so we just, we forget. And so people look at it and they go, this is a way of denigrating women. But I mean, men, men, men did not have their, they weren't individuals. They didn't have the freedom to just be an individual. As soon as they were a part of a household, that from the moment they were born, that was a reality because they were now under their father, and they had and their father was a real representative of them. And I mean, we just we had the, these concepts that we've just lost, and we think that by changing the language they disappear, but instead they just become these this this dimension of our life that we we pretend isn't real. And I mean, we pretend like this doesn't happen for all kinds of things, but it does. When you're a general, you remain a general even after you stop. When you're a president, you remain a president even right. after you stop. And it means that there are real constraints on you. And those constraints are real because you accepted that position. And those constraints continue and they never can be ended until you die. And that's the same thing with Mr. Is there's real constraints that happen because you're married and that you're the head of a household. Right. And there's real constraints on a woman because she's married and she's the helpmeet of the head of the household. Right. And we see some of these things as even the pictures of Christ having holes in his hands still and having, you know, holes. In right. this. I mean, that there is a reality of him being the savior of the world. It transcends even through his glorification that exists and continues to exist. And so there's there we even this permanence of title and the permanence of the reality of it. We don't just make these things up. They come from, again, they go back to the gospel. Paul says, don't let women speak in church because it's confusion and confusion is not of God. And you just have to recognize that as soon as a woman, a wife becomes a civil magistrate, it, it creates confusion in the society. 
Right, Ephesians 5, 22 through 24 says, Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, is also Christ is head of the church. And he is the savior of the body. Therefore, just as the church is subject to Christ, so let the wives be to their own husbands in everything. Which means that you elect a woman, and if she's a godly woman, she'll submit to her husband, but she's the authority over her husband in that area to which she was elected. So now you have this issue that she has to submit to the one that she's in authority over in the area because this works fine, right? I mean, there's areas where you could be the elder of a church that I belonged and you're my employee and you, as my employee, you have to submit. And as you know, your member to you as an elder, I'd have to submit. And that works fine because they're different spheres. But this says in everything. So this includes the sphere of the civil magistracy. So when the wife says, this is what the commandment is, this is what the law will be, the husband can go, no. And that is inherently confusion. You can't eliminate the confusion in that because the husband has authority over the wife, including when she's acting as a civil magistrate. Well, you, you can eliminate the confusion. And the way that you eliminate the confusion is you say that that authority actually doesn't exist in the household. That's how you eliminate the confusion. Right. You take everything and redefine it. Yep. Yep. <laughs> That's basically, yeah. Because you can do one of two things. You can take everything and redefine that, or you can say, okay, it, we're going to redefine. She's the civil magistrate, but her husband is really the one who's the civil magistrate. You're stuck that you have to redefine one or the other. You have to say she's not really the civil magistrate. He is, or everything doesn't mean everything. It just means everything within the household. And it doesn't get rid of the confusion. No, that's just enough because right. you're twisting just, words, which it, is confusing. It relocates right. the confusion to <laughs> right, one right. I just want to be clear, right? right? It does not resolve the confusion because where we are today is the multi-generational steps of trying to move. We just keep moving the confusion and multiplying it and shifting it and, and compounding it. The argument in the Bradley case that we looked at from – or the Bradwell case from 1873 was basically saying this introduces confusion. If a husband has authority over a wife, then in a sense, she's not a free agent in the public sphere, which is, you know, now we're, we're well past that. We just say, well, obviously the husband doesn't have authority over the wife in everything because he doesn't have authority to tell her to enact such and such policy, vote such and such way. Or if she's godly, he does. And you just elected him thinking you were electing her which right. is equally problematic because that was deceitful. And it gets even more specific. You know, you look at Numbers 30 and there's very specific rules about if, you know, a wife makes a, makes a covenant, makes an oath, um, makes a vow, that the husband in the day that he hears of it can overturn that. And so, you know, the wife makes an oath, of, takes her oath of office, and then the next, you know, that day the husband secretly overturns it. You know, what type of confusion are you introducing there? Or not just on the oath of office, right? She signs a bill. And then he hears that he signed the bill and went, I don't, you know, that doesn't stand. Then that doesn't stand. What we're talking about here, Numbers 36 through 8, it says, If indeed she takes a husband while bound by her vows or by a rash utterance from her lips by which she bound herself, and her husband hears it and makes no response to her on the day that he hears, then her vow shall stand and her agreements by which she bound herself shall stand. But if her husband overrules her on the day that he hears it, he shall make void her vow which she took, and what she uttered with her lips, by which she bound herself, and the Lord will release her. I mean, I mean, this is, I mean, it's just, and 
this isn't like not that long ago in the United States. This was the dis- I mean, this discussion was had about what happens if you elect a woman into office. I mean, you can see from the Bradwell case. I mean, it's very clear it's that that was happening there. But I mean, <laughs> people basically said if you elect a woman. Does she have to submit to her husband? I mean, this was, I mean, the Bradwell case, just to be clear, was her just becoming an attorney. Right. Not even elected into right. office. This was just her becoming an attorney. But, I mean, I remember, I mean, I think when when uh, Geraldine Ferraro ran for vice president, I remember, I was young, but I remember some of these discussions happening around me from people going, how do you deal with this? And, and there were people going, well, obviously, she doesn't have to submit to her husband. Other people were going, what do you mean? Where's what's your basis for this? And having you know, there were real discussions about these about these issues. And she can make that agreement, right? And it's not even an oath. I was thinking it's that oath in there, but it just says her agreement or a rash utterance from her lips that she binds herself. And it's a rash utterance, right? The definition of rash utterance here, when it comes down to it, is she didn't ask her husband ahead of time, right? Because you know, it says in her agreement, so why would she bound herself shall stand when if he hears about it and he doesn't annul them in that day, and so. Think about it. The definition of a rash utterance is that she's making a social commitment without asking her husband. And yet now we're turning around and saying that they can be a civil magistrate. I don't see how you can. Un- it just becomes a it just becomes such confusion. And understand if this was if this was the understanding that a society would have, this is this is a way of protecting families. I mean, it is a huge way of protecting families because everybody would understand if they had an agreement, they need to make sure that it's been, you know, they would go, hey, did you, you know, did you run that by your husband? Is your husband hurt? You know, if they go to the husband and say, your wife said she was going to do this and the husband says yes. I mean, all these things would end up getting wrapped up in it and all of the practices would be, would line up so that they had this understanding that a husband could do this. And so, I mean, you think about the protection this would give to a woman. I mean, we've talked about how the men and women have different strengths. Women are more, you know, women are physically weaker than men. So if some man was trying to intimidate a woman to make an agreement, she has this protection. She has this, you know, she has this thing that she can come back to and her husband can release her from it. And so there's no point in intimidating her into saying it. There's no point in doing those things. And so all of a sudden women have this protection in society. Since we've gone this far, we might as well, you know, jump into the deep end, (laughs) which is, so if voting is an exercise of civil authority, should women have the right to vote? And for a long time, for the majority of, yeah, the majority of the existence of this country, the answer was no. And we forget that. The answer was no until 1920. And it's interesting because if you go back and study it, people go, oh, women wanted the right to vote. That's actually not true. Men wanted women to have the right to vote. Who voted for the amendment to the Constitution for women to vote? Not women. Men did. And so don't deceive yourself. Right In the Atlantic, which we all know, if you ever read the Atlantic now, it's very liberal. It wasn't as liberal back then. But there was a headline in September 1903 in the Atlantic, or a, a story, that says, Woman does not wish to turn aside from her higher work, which is itself the end of life, to devote herself to government, which exists only that this higher work may be done. Can she not do both? No. And that's the Atlantic. And women didn't start to vote until large numbers until like 1960. What else is going on in 1960? We can all think about what's going on in 1960. The sexual revolution's going on. The drug movement's going on. The hippie movement. I mean, all these movements. Our society was being upended. 
And that's when women started to vote in large numbers. Before that, the only ones that voted were the ones that were trying to push a social agenda because they were trying to un- – a socialist agenda because they were trying to undermine the family. And there's a part of it where you see how these things shift because in the end what you're saying is should women be able to vote? No, which means their husband is the federal head of the home. The husband casts mm-hmm. the vote, which means that marriage – is choosing someone to be your federal head. It's a recognition that you're choosing someone who will take your best interest to heart, that you believe this, that this is who you're picking. I mean, and we do this all the time. We vote senators in, we put judges in. I don't get to go. We should all get to go make the judgment for the judge. No, he is the person who's been appointed to do this. And so, I mean, we have this in existence, but look at what's happened to marriage since that's gone on. It you're no longer choosing someone who's your federal head. You're choosing someone that you like having fun with. You're choosing someone that you you feel strong emotions for. I mean, marriage fundamentally changed as soon as that changed because all of a sudden, the whole nature of the relationship was turned on its head. Men ceased to be their wife's head. And they didn't cease to be because God's the right. one that declared it. But they ceased to have the the recognition of the weight of it. And the women cease to have the recognition of the importance of who their head was because they pretend like, no, we're equal. No, that's not the way it works because God's the one that gets to declare it. He's the one who said that the husband was the head. And man doesn't have the ability to overrule that any more than we have the ability to say two men can marry. We just can't. We're not God. God said this is the way it works and that's the way it works. And you can be in rebellion to it, but there's still real effects. And part of the way that that rebellion manifested and continues to manifest, and and there's no way that anybody listening to this is going to agree with us if, if, if you still think this way is that we've said that the role of women is not to fulfill some higher work or some end of life like this kind of article from the Atlantic assumes this very good sermon that the Atlantic wrote. right right <laughs> that 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 everything about the messaging that the culture has for women is that being a wife and mother is drudgery it's not high work it's not a high calling it's not what God made you to do. It's that that's what you have to settle for. You know, that's everything that's being pushed. And and if that's what you've been imbibing, which it is, because you can't get out of that from this culture. If that's what you've been, you know, has been pushed into your veins with the the cultural IV, then there's no way that anything that that we're saying here is going to be at all palatable to you. But if you can back up from that and say, what does scripture say women are for? And say, what did, when, when God made woman and said, she's very good and said, here's what I, I want from this thing that I've made. And that that's how a woman is really going to flourish, that that's a glorious thing for her. If you can start thinking like that, then some of these things can make more sense. I mean, let's be honest. What you're offering women, your cubicle isn't that glorious. You know what I mean? I mean, you know what I mean? The thing, the, women, being a breeder, being at home and raising children and the next generation and doing all. I mean, instead, you should go and work for someone else and sit in a cubicle and be on a team and sit on conference. I mean, they're not. They're not offering something glorious. It's not like they're asking you to trade. I mean, they're just 
they're just change, they're just saying what you used to do in a in a negative tone. If it was a political ad, that all the women stuff would be in black and white, and they would have ominous music <laughs> playing. It's it's all just marketing, and they don't have anything to offer. It's all pointless. Right. The answer is well, you shouldn't serve your husband. You shouldn't serve your children. That's evil to do that. What you should do is go serve a man. Who you may only serve them for a couple of years, and then you'll go serve a different man or a for a corporation. Couple of years. Well, in the end, they're working for Usually another man, man or a woman. But yep. even if it's a woman, instead of serving your husband and your children, who you claim to love, you're going to go serve somebody who a lot of times you hate. Right. And you go, this is a higher calling to spend your time, your energy, your resources to serve someone you hate instead of your husband and your children. That's actually better. I mean, I was. I don't usually listen to Jordan Peterson, but Jordan Peterson was talking to this woman who was interviewing him. He's, she's like, I don't want children. My life is fulfilled. And he's like, how old are you? 35. Yeah, wait 20 years. You'll go, what am I doing? I have nothing in life. You will be desperate. You will be miserable. You will be sad because in the end, you'll realize I just gave up my life to serve something that has no value. And he's right. And he's, he's talking from, you know, a statistical perspective of doing sociological, you know, surveys and stuff. But this is the reality is they've been told a, a list of lies to say that these things are valuable to go serve somebody that you may not even like, somebody that you won't know for very long, someone that you have no long-term relationship with instead of serving your husband and children. Really? That's smart. That's wise. No, that's foolishness. Women, yeah, our society is very busy working to deceive women, and the church has not helped. Yeah, men and women, because they consider, they look at the world differently because God designed them to look at the world differently. And, you know, a single woman is typically much more so, right? I'm not saying that all of them, but percentage wise, a single woman will invariably be more likely to vote for a socialist state than a married woman will. We don't usually look at these statistics, but you know, even in, in the 2020 election, right? if you break down voting by marital status and gender, 56% of men voted for Trump, 52% of married women voted for Trump, 46% of unmarried men voted for, Biden, or for Trump, and 37% of unmarried women voted for, for Trump. In other words, you see this huge decline as you get to, and the big jump is to unmarried women because Biden's selling a, a nanny state. He's saying you're, the government will be your father. The government will be your husband. We'll supply and, and it would be really clear. Need. Our point isn't that people should have voted for Trump. No, no, no. <laughs> My point is, and I just used 2020, but you can use any election since 1980. And it's the same statistics, basically. I mean, obviously it varies. But before nineteen, before eighteen eighty, before nineteen eighty, there wasn't that dramatic of a difference. But in nineteen eighty and afterwards, there starts to be a very dramatic difference. And it's always the same that the the unmarried women vote for a socialist government and a bigger government because they say they don't want a head, they say they don't want a protector and a provider, but then they vote for it. And in the end, they don't, they don't want their protector and provider to be brought down to an individual, to a person. And recognize this is married and unmarried. This isn't cohabitating or not cohabitating. This is married or unmarried. 
And so when you look at those unmarried women and unmarried men, a bunch of them are cohabitating. Right. And they're acting like they're married, but they're not married. But they're still far more likely to vote for the socialist candidate than they would for the for the more conservative candidate. So are we saying that, uh, you know, in, in churches that only men should go on, you know, election day down to the polls to cast a ballot? No, I'm not saying that. My wife votes. But but we vote the same because that is what the system is and there's no reason to dilute your vote but what that means is there's no reason to dilute your vote if your wife is going to go vote the opposite that you do then she shouldn't vote but if he but you know my wife and i we agree on who we're going to vote for and then we both both go and vote which which typically means either you or your brother look at the candidates more and make an argument for them and then i go check them out and see who who i agree with and my wife doesn't get very involved at all in it. She just basically votes for who I vote for. But it's not saying that they shouldn't vote because that is our system and that is our responsibility and that is how we have an influence. And we shouldn't say, well, we have to have half the influence that the other, you know, it's kind of like. What you're saying is, is the wife should submit to her husband. With I mean, a Christian wife should generally should submit to her husband's decision in voting. In voting. She should return the authority to him that's been taken from him. And in, in not by eliminating that authority by saying, well, we're not going to vote. And then you have the, li- the, the anti-Christian, let's put it that way, where they have two votes to your one. That, right. that doesn't make any sense. The civil magistrate has assigned that authority, she that should responsibility. Just vote under his authority. So it kind of ends up being like Deborah. Deborah wasn't in sin for judging. They came and asked her questions. He answered the questions. Brock was in sin by saying, you know, and obviously not a serious, and he's in Hebrews 11. He's a man of faith and well-known, right? He's, he's in that list. But when you take that and you look, I mean, she's saying you're going to be rebuked for this. Right. I mean, and one of the mercies that God does is he deals with us based on the light we have. And I mean, I mean, I mean, let's, I mean I'll be honest. To the extent that we're right, the fact that you've heard this argument changes changes the life that you have i mean there's this part of it where if you you hear these things and you believe they're true and god's you know and you're convicted by the words of scripture you have a real obligation i mean you have an obligation to do what god has told you to do and but with judges i mean god is merciful there are times that you've made decisions in the past where you didn't know these things god is merciful god's very kind to us he deals with us where we are but we can't use where we are as an excuse and go i don't have to change i don't have to listen to what god says. and i do have to put one one boundary on that because it's really easy to look at judges and go oh, look at the faithful men that made ephods and did all this idolatry and all right. this other stuff well we do have the holy spirit right. that guides us to all truth absolutely we do have the constraint that the holy spirit convicts us of sin so don't look at the at judges and just go so i can do whatever i want because no. jesus christ came to fix that problem yes and, and even even without the holy spirit you couldn't just look at judges and say i can do whatever i want right i mean there's just there is a real you have an obligation mm-hmm. to use the light that god has given you but like you said you can't but there's more light because we have the holy spirit right and one thing that's kind of outside the scope of this episode is to say that well okay maybe we've convinced you that uh, women shouldn't be running for office but what if they are should we vote for them anyway you know lesser of two evils type thing and if you listen to that you know first first episode of voting we try to talk more about that is you know if we say this this is a fundamentally flawed even unqualified candidate is there a place to vote for them i mean we did sort of talk about that when we said isaiah 3 says women rolling over you is a curse 
Do you really do you really <laughs> want to pick a curse for your neighbor and your community? We should recognize, even as we talk about women as civil magistrates, that a real issue is that the church doesn't care about children. If the church cared more about children and cared more about women, it would have a better testimony in this area and the world around it. And it's not like you can say that oh, women shouldn't be or should be civil magistrates without really affecting children, because it really does. It really affects families. It really affects the order that God put into the world. So this is a major issue. Do you trust the gospel? Do you trust the order that God has put in the world so that there be a testimony of the church and Jesus Christ? Or do you think that things should be flipped on their head? Be really careful how you answer and be careful how you vote. Thanks for joining us. This has been The Conquering Truth, a project of Reformation Baptist Church. If you found this helpful, you can visit us online at theconqueringtruth.com and subscribe here or in your favorite podcast app. Thanks for watching.